I'm sure you noticed as you came into the building this morning out in the hallway, out the right of the center doors is a, a tri-fold display uh, that is pertaining to Vacation Bible School. We're encouraging folks to, to take one of um, the silverish, grayish pieces of paper and make your own family crest. Uh, take it as an opportunity to be creative, and we're going to be hanging them up around the building for a vacation Bible school. If you want to get a little bit of idea as to what that might look like, there's one on the trifle display to help you kind of get started. But there are at least 10 uh, pieces of paper uh, trying to get one per family. So if you want to take one, decorate it, and come up with what you might think your own family crest might look like, decorate it, prepare it, and then bring it back so that we can have it ready for Vacation Bible School on July 10th. But we're looking forward to how the Lord is going to work and excited about the things that he is going to be doing and already doing as we're putting in much preparation for this. Uh, in your Bibles this morning, we're continuing to look at the life of the prophet Elisha. So I'm going to ask that you turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. We've been here in 2 Kings chapter 2 for a little while as we've looked at uh, some of the experiences of the prophet Elisha since he was called by God through the prophet Elijah. And what we've seen thus far in the life and the ministry of Elisha is that God calls, God tests, God drives and equips every true servant of his. No matter where you are in life, God has called every single believer into his service, and our responsibility is to respond to God's call and to serve him where he has called us. Now, serving God is going to look different person to person. Even if the Lord equips some of us with similar gifts and talents, God's plan may be for us to use those talents in a different way than what we expected or to use them in a different way than how others who are similarly equipped are using their gifts and talents. And one of the main reasons why God would have us use our gifts in ways other than what we may expect is to make it clear to us that he, that God, is the one to receive all of the glory. It can be very easy for us to want to take credit for any success that we have, especially when we're using the gifts and talents that we have in our own way. And that is why God often leads us to serve him beyond and outside the levels of our comfort zone. God doesn't equip us to just send us off on our own way and to do what we want. He equips us to be of better use to him and to bring him greater glory. Often that involves stretching. I don't know about you, but when you're stretched, often what comes is stress. And God stretches us, not for the purpose of breaking us. He stretches us to go beyond what we've been used to going and doing, even if what we've been doing for him has been good. As we've looked at the life of Elisha, we've seen how the Lord took him out of his comfort zone, away from the family business, which he could have very easily set himself up in and be set for life doing the family business, to now serve the Lord as a prophet where he would be completely dependent upon God. That is a huge sacrifice to make. Essentially, Elisha gave up probably a lifetime of financial stability to pursue a life where wealth will not be measured in money and in possessions. 
It certainly isn't the popular decision in today's world, is it? It's certainly not what the world is driving us to pursue. They're, pursue, they're trying to steer us to pursue a life that is going to be driven by material wealth and material possessions. And that's what the standard of success is going to be measured by. But God doesn't always do that which is popular. True devotion to God is seen when we're willing to give up the very best that this world is offering and pushing us towards and measure success by God's standard. In some ways, I think we're all materialistic. In some ways. Even if we can't afford to be materialistic, we all have something in this world that we're pursuing. It may not be necessarily something tangible, but in some way we all have something worldly that we value highly and pursue in some way. Even if what we're valuing is good, these things can still be used as a stumbling block, preventing us from serving God the way that he wants us to serve him. And it wasn't as if Elisha was a completely worldly man that needed to be pulled out of such a horrible lifestyle or that he was living an ungodly life, but the family business was not what God had in store for him. Elisha had every tool, every tool that was honed and used properly for the family business, but God was showing him and going to show him how he was going to use those same gifts for something completely different than what he thought his life was going to amount to. All God required was that Elisha step out of his comfort zone and allow God to stretch him. Now, how many of you think that was easy for Elisha to do? to give up the life that he thought was going to be what was the rest of his life, to go and pursue something that he knew ne next to nothing from. How many of you think that was easy? No, good. Do you think that maybe he was a little unsure of what God was going to do and how God was going to use him? God hadn't mapped it all out for him. God didn't send Elijah to him and, and sit Elijah down and say, okay, here's how it's all going to unfold. You're going to leave the family business, but don't worry because you're going to be taken care of here, this way, and then in this situation, God is going to do this, and in this situation, God is going to do this. So rest assured, it's all going to work out perfectly fine. And here's the map as to how you can be assured of in every difficult situation how it's all going to unfold. No, God didn't do any of that. God hadn't mapped it out for him and told him all that was going to happen. He just simply sent Elijah to call Elisha to the ministry of the prophet. It may not always be easy, but it is always better to be in the will of God than to do what we view as easy. Now, as we continue looking at Elisha's ministry, we come to the second miracle. Elijah has been carried away into heaven at this point. And Elisha received the double portion of his spirit as he asked. Elisha used, as part of the first miracle, Elijah's mantle to part the river or the water of the Jordan River, allowing him to pass through to Jericho. Now, this miracle was witnessed by the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho and confirmed in them that Elisha had indeed received power from God. But notice what we see in verses 15 through 16 here in 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings 2, 15 and 16. It says, And when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold now, 
There be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. Lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, Ye shall not send. Two things come to mind with this request that these sons of the prophets make to Elisha as they want to go and search for Elijah. First, these young prophets knew enough that Elijah had at least been taken away from Elisha that day. Now, we don't know how they knew it, it was all going to happen this day, but the word seemed to spread pretty quickly because when Elijah first left, and when the two of them, Elijah and Elisha, first left Gilgal and arrived in Bethel, they somehow, the sons of the prophets somehow knew that there was something happening. Look back at what we see in verse number five of chapter two. So chapter two just chronicles the journey of Elijah and Elisha until eventually Elijah is carried away. But notice what it says in verse number five. It says, And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master, reference to Elijah, from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. So they somehow knew that Elijah was going to be taken away, but beyond that, they had no clue as to how it was all going to happen. So they knew that he'd gone. But secondly, the young prophets saw Elijah taken away. Look at what we read in verse number seven. It says, And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they stood, and they, they, they too stood by Jordan. Again, we don't know how much they saw. If they saw the chariot of fire, if they saw the horses of fire, or if all they saw was Elijah and Elisha walking together and then Elijah just taken away and disappeared. Now the reason I say this is that we don't know what they saw and probably they didn't see him taken to heaven but just disappear because later on a few chapters in 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse number 17 when the Syrians had come to capture Elisha, the servant of Elisha was, was able to see the armies of the Syrians that had surrounded him and Elisha, but he was unable to see that God had also sent an army to protect them. A few chapters later, notice, notice what we read in 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse number 17. It says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes, the eyes of the young servant who could only see the Syrian army, Open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Now, based on that, it's quite possible that the young prophets here in 2 Kings chapter 2 only saw Elijah disappear from their view without actually seeing him taken to heaven by a chariot of fire. But either way, it is evident that they knew something supernatural had happened to Elijah because the way that they speak with Elisha here in verse number 16 is as if something almost bad may have happened to Elijah and that they must go and find him. Notice again what it says in verse 16. It says, And they said unto him, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master." Lest peradventure the spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. So they know that something has happened, that he's been taken. They just don't realize he's been taken to heaven. 
Now put yourselves in their shoes. How might you respond? If you stood afar off and saw what you thought was just Elijah taken like that, but unsure as to where he was taken, would you have acted any differently than how they acted and how they responded here in verse number 16? How often does God send a chariot of fire and horses of fire to come and and swoop someone up and take them directly to heaven? Have any of you ever seen that? No. I, I think it was quite a natural reaction for these prophets to have. And honestly, was their request any different from maybe a request that you and I have, would have made if we were there? Was it even any different than what request Peter asked of, of Jesus when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration? In Matthew chapter 17 and verse number 4, the Bible tells us that, that Peter is up there and he sees Christ in his transfigured glory and he begs to stop and to memorialize that place. And notice what it says in Matthew 17, verse 4. He says, If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, he didn't know all that was going on and was suggesting to do something that made sense from his perspective and with the information that he had. From the perspective of these prophets here in 2 Kings chapter 2, they were openly concerned for who their teacher had been, Elijah, and what happened to him, and wanted to do whatever they could to help him if, they, if he indeed needed help. Even though they were asking from a place of ignorance because they truly did not understand what happened. If they knew he went to heaven, they're never coming to this request at all. But they're coming from a place of ignorance. They still should be commended for their respect as they submitted their request to Elisha first. Now, before we're we're too quick to criticize them, think about what this concern they had for Elijah really showed. Elijah had evidently been their teacher for some time, and they had such respect and admiration for them that they didn't want to see him go. They didn't want to see any harm come upon him. And I got to thinking, are we as attached, are we as concerned for the different servants of God that are in our lives today? Are we concerned when we see them go? Are we concerned about what harm may come upon them as they're standing for Christ? At the end of verse 16, we see that Elisha rather tersely refuses their request. So they come to him and they say, listen, there's 50 strong men that we are more than confident in. If we send them out, surely they're going to find where he is. Whether he's on top of a mountain or in some low valley, they will find where he is and they will restore him. And Elisha responds, he says, ye shall not send. He doesn't offer any explanation as to why any sort of search for Elijah would be unnecessary. He just tells them, no, no. It's possible that he expected, if the Lord really wanted these people to know that Elijah was carried away into heaven, that God would have opened their eyes to see the whole event right before them. And if they didn't see it, it wasn't for them to see it. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration back in Matthew 17, not all 12 disciples were allowed to go up there to witness those events either. In all honesty, there seems to be a clue given to us as to why this privilege was withheld from some of them. As we read in verse number 7 here in 2 Kings chapter 2, that it says, They stood to view afar off. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off. They, in other words, weren't close by, but afar off, which was not the case with Elisha, 
who was right next to Elijah the entire time and followed him faithfully. There is something to be said about drawing near to God and faithfully following him rather than following from a distance. The ones that will enjoy the greatest blessings, the ones that will enjoy the greatest privileges are those who are dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty, not at a distance, but close by. It wasn't just that Elisha happened to be in the right place at the right time. His place was to be right next to God's servant, Elijah. And 10 years prior to the events here in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha determined that he was going to be by Elijah's side every moment. He made it his life's mission to serve God without compromising. And what we see is that God blessed him because every opportunity he had to leave Elijah's side was never even entertained, never even thought about for a second because Elisha was determined to follow God more than following anyone else. So it's never said of Elisha that he followed from a distance or he stood back to view from afar. So there's a significant difference between where these 50 sons of the prophets were as they're watching Elijah leave this earth and that correlates to what they were actually able to see because they missed the true blessing that Elisha was able to behold as he was right there next to the servant of God the entire time. And as a result, Elisha experienced encounters where God's power was on display unlike anywhere else and even if he could describe it. It was beyond the understanding of those who were only half-hearted in their commitment to God. Even though Elisha doesn't tell these young men what had happened, they should have let the matter go once he told them no. But notice what we see in verse number 17. So they're determined, and out of a heart of appreciation for their former teacher, Elijah, they want to go and do something about rescuing him from what they think he needs rescuing. But notice what happens after Elisha tells them, you shall not send. And then in verse number 17, it says, And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent, therefore, 50 men, and they sought three days, but found him not. Surprise, surprise, right? Elijah wasn't even on earth. They could have searched far and wide, every nook and cranny, every crevice of this world, and never found him because Elijah was nowhere to be found on earth. Again, this was no common occurrence that happened to Elijah. There's only one other person the Bible tells us that was taken directly from earth to heaven without seeing death, and that was a man by the name of Enoch. So it was a completely logical thought For these sons of the prophets to suspect that Elijah may be in need of help somewhere, whether it's on a mountain or in a valley or anywhere else, he's somewhere where the Spirit just kind of picked him up and dropped him off somewhere. And we read that as much as they urged him, that Elisha felt ashamed, most likely because if he continued to refuse them, they would likely think he was being influenced by some undue desire to take over Elijah's place of honor. And notice what happens, though, in verse number 18. It says, And when they came again to him, so they sent out the 50 men. Three days they're searching. They find nothing. Verse 18, it says, When they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? 
So after they sent 50 men of Jericho who surged and came up empty-handed, they are the ones who are now feeling ashamed. Now they realize that they should have listened to Elisha three days ago. Now this brings us to Elisha's second miracle. And I want you to notice, first of all, the order of the miracle. The order of the miracle. So this was the second that happened. With Elisha's first miracle, he acted completely alone as he used the mantle of Elijah to part the waters of the Jordan River. But with the second miracle, he wouldn't be alone. Elijah would use the men of Jericho to bring him a new cruise and to put salt in it before proceeding with the miracle. So that's the order, if you want to look at it that way. But secondly, notice the place of the miracle. Verse 18 tells us that Elisha was at Jericho with this second miracle and when it occurred. Notice again what it says. It says, when they came again to him... For he tarried at Jericho. He said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? If you can remember to some Old Testament stories, Jericho was the first city of the Canaanites that was closed off to the nation of Israel. While they were still wandering around, waiting to occupy the land that God had promised them, the nation, the city of Jericho, was the first one that was closed off to them. Jericho was then pronounced as accursed. And specific orders were given to the children of Israel that they were not to take anything for themselves or else they would bring a curse unto the camp of Israel. So God told them that you're going to go and defeat Jericho. The walls are going to be destroyed. They're going to be thrown down and you're going to plunder the city. But he says, don't take anything for yourself. And if they did, he said, you would bring a curse to the entire camp of the Israelites. And after the children of Israel marched around the city, the walls came crashing down just as God said they would. And the children of Israel, they destroyed everything that was in the city. And the Bible says they burned it. That is when the curse was proclaimed in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 26. It says, and Joshua adjured them at that time saying, cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. Both of those warnings that were given by God were eventually ignored. In Joshua chapter 7, we find out that Achan, man of the children of Israel, that Achan had taken some of the spoils from Jericho, which he conveniently had hid in his tent. And unfortunately for him, God knew what he had done, and he and his family paid with their lives as they were stoned to death, and then their bodies were burned. The second warning was ignored several hundred years later, under the reign of a wicked king, Ahab. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse number 34, it says, In his days, and it's in the days of King Ahab, in his, day did, in his days did Hiel, the Bethelite, build Jericho. And notice what it says. It says, He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, we don't know for sure how the sons of Hiel died. They may have died as a curse, or Hiel may have sacrificed them. Over the years, archaeological excavations have uncovered evidence of a practice in ancient biblical times called foundation sacrifices, where children were literally buried, often alive, in the foundations of the building as a means of sacrificing them to gods. God was actually offering a merciful warning to King Ahab in this. 
that his word would never be ignored. The word from Joshua chapter 6, which he clearly said, cursed be the one that buildeth this city, ended up happening several hundred years later there in 1 Kings chapter 16. And God was warning Ahab as the man who was most likely directed by Ahab to rebuild Jericho found this to be true. Ahab should have thrown himself at the mercy of God and started at that moment to take God seriously. Unfortunately, we're told about Ahab that it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Not exactly what you want to have written about you in the Bible. Regardless of how God had warned about cursing those who rebuilt Jericho, it was now rebuilt. And here is the place upon which the prophet Elisha is and where the second miracle will take place. But notice third, the object of the miracle. The object of the miracle. Look at verse number 19 here in 2 Kings chapter 2. It says, And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth, but the water is not, and the ground barren. Now it's interesting that the men of Jericho would describe Jericho this way, where they say the situation of this city is pleasant. How pleasant could it really be with bad water and barren ground, which is what they say. God was once again expressing his displeasure with Jericho and with the rebuilding of Jericho by causing the water and the ground to basically be useless. History tells us that it was more than just useless, but that the water was so bad, it would actually poison the cattle, the trees that would shed fruit. They would bear fruit far too early before the fruit was mature. And the water was so poisonous that women were actually incapable of bearing children because of the horrible effects the water had on them. So when the Bible describes the water as not, it is the Hebrew word ra'ah, which literally means evil. So as pleasant a location as Jericho may have been, there was no good water for its people and for its animals. And that, I don't know about you, is not a small problem. That's a major issue. Not having a viable source of water to live off of? How could I ever describe that place as being pleasant? And yet that's what they say. I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant. As my Lord seeth, take a look, it's beautiful. There's just one problem. The water's evil. We can't drink it. It poisons our animals. It causes all sorts of issues with us physically. The land is completely barren, but it's a beautiful place, isn't it? Wouldn't you want to come on vacation to Jericho? Swim in the waters, drink of all the bottled water that they supply right from the fountains of Jericho. No one's lining up to go there. So this is the object of the miracle, Jericho itself. But notice fourth, the means used for the miracle. The means used for the miracle. Look at verses 20 and 21. And he said, Elisha, bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the spring of the waters and cast the salt in there and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. The appropriateness of using salt in this miracle is immediately evident. Salt is one of the, the best purifiers 
the best preservatives known to man. Earth's atmosphere is kept healthy for the people of Earth through salty vapors that, uh, which the sun's rays distill from the ocean. And this is why salty sea breezes can be incredibly therapeutic for people. The elements in salt, they prevent the putrefying process. And this is why when prisoners were typically scourged, salt was rubbed in their wounds. Even though it was extremely painful, it prevented putrefying as well as prevented blood poisoning. Now, on a lighter note, salt is one of the, the best seasonings that we use. We use it on food to make things that are bland taste good. When it comes to our speech, the Bible instructs us in Colossians 4 verse 6, it says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Meaning that our speech should always be pleasant and acceptable in the sight of God. Just as salt prevents putrefying, so when grace goes along with our speech and our conversation, it makes it pure and it makes it edifying. Jesus taught in Matthew 5, verse 13, as he was speaking to his disciples, he says, ye are the salt of the earth. We're to be ministers of God, not just in works, but also in our words. Sometimes we can say the right thing at the wrong time or in the wrong tone. And whatever good we were hoping to see can quickly become bad. Being the salt of the earth doesn't just mean knowing what to say. It also means knowing how to say it and knowing when to say it. There are a lot of believers who have immense knowledge of God and his word and know what needs to be said to help solve certain problems. But because they lacked tactfulness in delivering the message, they make a mess of the situation. It's good to have wholesome speech, but let that wholesome speech be seasoned with salt. There are some situations where we, of course, need to be more forward in delivering God's message, but many times God's message needs to be delivered in a more compassionate manner, not always the swift hammer of judgment that it sometimes does call for. And notice fifth, the instrument of the miracle. The instrument of the miracle. Look at verses 21 and 22. I know we just looked at verse 21, but look at it again. It says, And when he went forth unto the spring of the waters, and cast the salt in there, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. Was there some miraculous agent in the salt that caused it to make the water good? Was there something special in the salt? No? It, it wasn't a name brand salt. It wasn't the store version of it. This was nothing to do with the salt at all. No miraculous agent in the salt that caused this, caused this to happen. Did the men of Jericho have something to do with making the salt have the miraculous effect on the water? Did they have anything to do with this? No. Elisha used the men of Jericho to bring the salt. And he cast the salt into the water, but he made sure that all of this was pointless unless 
The blessing of God accompanied what was done. And notice what he said there in the middle of verse number 21. He says, he cast the salt in there and he said, thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. In declaring this, Elisha made it clear that the Lord was the source of all of the power. Even if he was God's human instrument to perform the miracle, as it stated there in verse number 22, it says, So the waters were healed unto this day according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. God was the source of the power. This is the same lesson that Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where there were divisions among the church. The people were envious. They were arguing with one another over petty matters. And what, I want you to listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. The Bible says, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. You know what Elisha was doing here? He was evidencing this truth in declaring that the waters of Jericho were not going to be healed by some miraculous salt. They were not going to be healed by the way that he threw the salt into the water. They were not going to be healed about how diligently the men gathered the salt. They were only going to be healed by God Almighty who was going to speak his blessing and bring healing to what could only be healed by him. Everything we do for the Lord is done through the Lord's power. For us to be true servants of Christ, we must be humbly yielded over to God to be his instrument. When God's hand is upon you, he will do great things through you, but as only as we are yielding ourselves to his service. And that's what Paul was getting at there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, you guys are arguing about the most ridiculous stuff. Who led you to the Lord is as if that's going to be more important. Whose are you, he says. God is the one that has saved you if you're saved at all. It doesn't matter if it was your grandmother. It doesn't matter if it was Apostle Paul. It doesn't matter if it was King David. It doesn't matter. Because each of them don't deserve to be up on a pedestal. They are nothing, he says, but instruments that God used to bring the message of truth to you. He says, God is the source of it all. God is the everything behind it, not 90%, and then we can give 10% of praise to Paul. He is the 100%. So if there's any praise that should be offered anywhere, it's not to whether it was Paul or Apollos or anyone else. It is to God. And if you start doing that, he said, you start arguing and having this division among yourselves as to who's better because, you know, Paul led me to the Lord as, far as, as, as opposed to this person over here. What a petty thing to be arguing about, but we do that, don't we? We find a reason to, to be competitive. And this idea that Elisha is describing here is that of being an instrument of God. And that is it. To be an instrument of God, though, we need to be in tune with God. How many of you have ever played an instrument before? How many of you have played an instrument that is out of tune? Whitney, what does that sound like? Not good. How long does it take you to notice it's out of tune? Not that long. Almost right away sometimes. And believe it or not, I used to play the saxophone. Wish I would have stayed with it more. But I could tell 
sometimes right away if I'm not playing it right. My mother could tell very clearly when the noise reverberated all throughout the house when I wasn't playing it right. When we are an instrument of God, we need to be in tune with God. Without a doubt, instruments sound so much better when they're in tune. And as instruments of God, our effectiveness for God is directly linked to how well we are tuned into God's message and God's purpose. You're still capable of making noise, not being in tune. But what kind of instrument are you going to be? Some of us are struggling in our service for Christ because we're so out of tune. Nearly everything we say and everything we do seems to fall on deaf ears or turns back to bite us. Rather than helping people and being a blessing, we're doing more harm for the cause of Christ because we're not at all in tune with God's methods or God's means. We're like the Corinthian believers there in 1 Corinthians 3 who were more concerned with position and status than they were serving Christ. And as a result, they spent their time competing against one another rather than ministering side by side with fellow believers. And the sooner we realize that the ministry is not about us, the better off we'll be. If you're serving Christ to put yourself on the map, to get name recognition, to receive praise of men, you're not only doing it for all the wrong reasons, but you're not going to be effective in your service for Christ at all. God's not interested in the least bit in sharing the spotlight. Neither is he interested in working through those who are prideful and always boasting in themselves. So be an instrument. By golly, be an instrument, but be an instrument in the master's hands and be tuned with the master's leading and calling and trust him as he leads. Notice sixth, the significance of the miracle. The significance of the miracle. Look back at verse number 19 as we see this. It says, And the men of the city said unto Elijah, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth, but the water is not, and the ground barren. Notice that it was the men of Jericho that initiated this miracle. They came to Elijah and they told him about the city being a pleasant place, but having terrible water. There was enough understanding if, of Elisha's position with God to know, even with these sons of Jericho, that he could probably do something to remedy the situation. As a servant of God, we must always be ready to jump into action. There are always going to be people who, when you're living godly, especially are looking up to us, especially when we're in ministry. And many times we're going to be called upon to act on something without any sort of advanced notice. Not only do we have to be ready, but we also have to be approachable. Elisha, as the prophet of God, was not only ready, but he was approachable as these men knew that they could come to him with this problem. Not only, though, are we supposed to be ready and approachable, but we must also be available. When Elisha was approached by these men, he doesn't tell them to come back at another time. He doesn't tell them that he doesn't have time for them right now. He doesn't turn them away because he's too busy. He doesn't say, you know, you deserve to live with this horrible water. He makes time for them, and he makes time for them immediately. Notice again, verse 19 and 20. 
And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth, but the water is not, and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. He doesn't say, you know, guys, come back. Let's table this for a month and we'll talk about it later. He says, here's what you need to do. Go, bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. And they go and do it. He was approachable. He was available. Sometimes the best ability we can offer people is availability. People need to be able to count on us. They need to be able to trust us. They need to be able to come to us with their problems and they need to know that we're going to care enough about them and about what they're going through to try and help them. Elisha was a servant of God who loved people and it showed in how the men of Jericho were able to approach him. If he had a reputation of not caring for people, these men don't approach him at all. He didn't look down upon them. He didn't dismiss them. He was, wasn't repulsed by their presence. Rather, he immediately jumped at the opportunity to help them. And verse number 19 tells us that these were the men of the city. It says, And the men of the city said unto Elijah, intimating that this is a different group than the young prophets that stood afar off and were eager to send out a search party to find Elijah. Elijah could have told the men in the city, he could have said, Look, I hear your problem, but this isn't my problem. I'm only here to teach these young prophets. I don't have time to deal with your problems right now. I've got things that I'm working with on my own. Elisha realized something so crucial that many people, it takes years for them to learn, if they learn it at all. That ministry is all about people. Ministry is all about people. And when you're dealing with people, you're going to have a whole host of issues. Everyone is going to have their own idea as to how things should be done, as to what the service should look like as to how many songs we should sing in the service, how long the preaching should be, quiet, what color the carpet should be, what the message on the church sign should say, and a million other things. Sometimes we feel like we're walking a tightrope, trying to keep everyone happy. But then we realize that it's impossible to keep everyone happy. And quite honestly, ministry is not about keeping everyone happy. It's about showing people the Savior and striving to keep them in the will of God. Ministry is about loving people. And as much as loving people involves encouraging them, loving people also involves admonishing them when necessary. When Elisha first heard the request of the young prophets, what does he say? He says, ye shall not send. No! I hear what you're saying. And I understand your concern for Elijah. But you also have to understand that I know things that you don't know. Don't. And then they keep coming back. Keep coming back. He thought about the request. He made himself available to answer them. He knew that any search for Elijah would be fruitless because he's not on earth to be found. There are times when people will question your motives and your actions without knowing all the details. As we see from how Elisha dealt with the young prophets, he listened to them and continued to make himself available to them because even though he knew they were wrong, he still loved them. And notice that when the men of Jericho speak to him about the condition of the water in verse 19, Elisha treats them the same way. But here, he actually requires something of them. Look again at verse number 20. And he said, bring me a new cruise and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. These men knew enough 
that Elisha might be able to do something about their water situation, but their trust in Elisha would be tested in how much they were willing to follow the prophet's instructions. What we see is that he gave them clear instructions, and the verse ends by telling us that they brought it to him. In other words, they followed his instructions immediately. In ministry, sometimes we don't have to go to anyone. Sometimes the Lord just brings people to us. Elisha wasn't out soul winning when he encountered these people from Jericho. They approached him. But here's the lesson. The true servant of God isn't only concerned about souls when he's out soul winning. He's concerned about souls all the time. Serving God is not a job that we clock in and out from. It's not something that we're serious about only when we come to church and then we forget about it until the next church service rolls around. Serving God is life. Ministry is life. Loving people is life. Problems don't just arise on Sunday mornings. How many of you know that our phones work just as good Monday through Saturday as they do on Sundays? My phone works. Do you know that? My phone works just as good every day of the week as it does on Sunday. There's a reason that I have my phone number listed in the bulletin. 518-389-5985 for those that are listening on the website later on. If any of you have a need, ever, please know that you can call or text. If there's something that I can do to help you in any way, allow me the opportunity to do so. This is not a job for me. God has called me to be the under-shepherd here at Latham Bible Baptist Church. I may have a different relationship with each of you, but know that I love every single one of you. I'm God's servant, and it's my responsibility to honor God in the way that I lead. Notice last, seventh, the permanency of the miracle, the permanency of the miracle. Look at verses 21 and 22 once more. And he went forth into the spring of the waters and cast the salt in there and, thus, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. The waters were healed unto this day. The effects of the miracle didn't wear off after a certain number of days, the waters were healed unto this day. We read in Ecclesiastes 3.14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. God completely changed the course of that land. A land that was once known for death and barrenness would have its waters healed for good. God worked through his servant Elisha who was approachable, available and willing to help those who were in need because he was aware of those that were in need. God is going to accomplish his will one way or another. We can get on board with God's plan and be the servant, be the instrument that is in tune with God's will and God's methods, be approachable, be available, be willing and aware, and be a blessing to others as we honor God, or God can accomplish his will by kind of pushing us out of the way and doing what needs to be done one way or another. The servant of God will recognize his loyalty to Christ and will seek to honor Christ by doing that which glorifies God. 
Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Lord, we thank you today for the example that we have here in Elisha, Lord, a man that was truly far from perfect, but Lord, demonstrated such qualities and characteristics, Lord, of a servant of yours and what it should be like. Lord, I pray that you would help us understand what that means for us. Each of us, Lord, have different areas in which we struggle, things that we need to be working on, Lord, and ultimately behaviors and lifestyle changes that need to be made. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, that as painful as these sacrifices may be, Lord, strengthen us to do what needs to be done to make sure that we are indeed in tune with your will and your word so that we might be the instrument that you need us to be, a servant, Lord, of yours that is approachable, available, and aware of the needs around. In Christ's name we pray, amen.